Hello, you're listening to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast with Richard Gillis. Today's conversation is part of a regular series of deep dives into the commercial landscape in a particular sport. And today we're talking about rugby union. Every major sport faces challenges that are common to all, but also there are specific differences that make them unique. This might be the commercial structure, the ownership, the political balance between club and country, for example, or the role of private equity, which is certainly a feature of any current rugby business conversation. So to get into the details, I sought the opinions of two people who have held senior commercial roles in the sport recently, Sophie Goldschmidt and Murray Barnett. Sophie Goldschmidt was formerly Chief Commercial and Marketing Officer at the Rugby Football Union in England, and she now lives in Santa Monica, having become CEO of the World Surf League. Before that, Sophie was Joint Managing Director of CSM Sport and Entertainment and has held roles at the NBA, the World's Tennis, the Women's Tennis Association, and Adidas. You know, the gap between football and rugby, I guess, looking specifically at the UK, it, just, it shouldn't be that, that big, but it's, I feel, structured in such a way that you can't optimise um, the value. From 2013 to 2016, Murray Barnett was Chief Commercial Officer at World Rugby, the game's global governing body overseeing broadcast and sponsorship. That's a period in his career that sandwiched between a long stint at the media giant ESPN and, more latterly, at Formula One. The reason I want to do talk about rugby is obviously for from both your points of view you've had very senior commercial jobs um in the recent past and rugby each sport has its own you know there are patterns and there are themes and and the same thing questions arise around the commercials around sponsorship media relationships all of those things and then there's some very specific things and i just want to sort of get your feeling for pointing the the conversation towards rugby and wondering what is it that that the where the key commercial sort of questions are. And I was going through a list and thinking, okay, some of the themes in rugby, which, you know, we might touch on, which is club versus country. We've got um, these sort of Afghan warlords almost of the various different unions. Um, you've got the, the World Cup and the calendar questions. You've got the summer, Southern Hemisphere um, issue. And then you've also got private equity and CVC floating around the outside so or very much on the inside now so i'm just wondering um what are the what do you think are the sort of key bits to the rugby economy murray if i come to you first with that if you look at look at the sport as a whole and you know obviously you were at world rugby what are the each sport has a few very very central commercial relationships what do you what do you think they are in rugby yeah, I'm 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 struggling a little bit because I can't take the image of Bill Sweeney as an as a as an Afghan warlord out of my head. But uh, <laughs> you know, aside from that, um, I think in, in all seriousness, there's kind of quite a big divide, and I'm, I'm sure that Sophie will agree that at a world rugby level, they've actually been very lucky because it's the last major, really major event to get away before all of this lockdown happened. And if you look at the way that the cycle happens, with the Rugby World Cup happening in September October of uh, 2019 the next one doesn't come until 2023 which which means that in in reality and it's and it's kind of 
not very nice to say it, but actually most of the other events that, that World Rugby do actually cost money. And so in reality, World Rugby from a purely fiscal perspective is actually not in a in a in a in a bad state. Now obviously their job is to grow the sport and it's impossible to do that when you've got a lockdown like like you've got right now. And that being said, you know, World Rugby is ultimately going to be dispersing an awful lot of that money to all of its members. The difficulty becomes, I think, much more at a national level where the, the the way that revenues come in and then are dispersed means that they don't actually have very big reserves or the vast majority of unions don't have very big reserves. And so, you know, they are living to a certain degree hand to mouth. And because they rely still quite heavily on event attendance um, and TV and obviously TV revenue, uh, you know, those are the probably the, the two along with sponsorship so so those three are the the, the three main drivers of uh, commercials you know and all of those are sort of devastated by but by, by this and I, i'm not sure that, that there's a i think if you if you want to take the positive perspective rugby is going to come out of this a much stronger but a very different sport uh, and that may not that may not be a bad thing but it's certainly going to uh, galvanize the sport to kind of perhaps act more in their collective interest than perhaps their own individual Afghan warlord-like uh, um, uh, ways in which they were in the past. It's a good analogy. So it's stuck. You, you got it. You got the uh, the Afghan warlord. <laughs> Sophie, what what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, maybe to build on Murray's um, latter point, as far as sort of silver linings and all that, I feel um, that overall sort of the structure of rugby and the club versus country um, kind of debate and conflict um, has evolved really slowly. And so I feel the structure still is in kind of previous decades and um, given where sport in general and where I think rugby needs to get to, to have the place it should. I mean, to me, you know, in the, the major markets where it's big and probably for most of them football's kind of, the one ahead, you know, the gap between football and rugby. I guess looking specifically at the UK, it just it shouldn't be that that big. But it's I feel structured in such a way that you can't optimize um, the value. And whether it's through CBC coming in, you know, this horrific pandemic that we're going through, I feel it will just give the sport hopefully the chance to really come together and look at it holistically as to how you know everyone. Um, can still have a place but I think the shift and how the calendar in particular is structured which then you know underpins the core rights um, will will hopefully change um, in a way that can allow you know revenue to come into the sport that can allow it to sort of flourish um, because I do feel outside of you know the World Cup Six Nations probably um, some of the Super 15 Sanzar events um, you know, it's really struggling. And if anything, it's been going backwards from a financial perspective. You know, it's with or without the wealth of the owners, um, it just, I don't feel it's grown at the rate it has the potential to. And I think people just sort of can't get out of their own way. And there's just too much history to kind of break through without kind of a burning platform scenario or a really interesting, exciting check like a, you know, private equity firm can deliver um especially when now i assume the sport the clubs and most of the unions are going to be even more financially strapped they're going to be desperate for that and that maybe that can shift the balance 
um, in a way that obviously doesn't, you know, remove the amazing values of the sport. And I think that's where that balance is really delicate. But I feel like it's kind of been held back um, because of that mindset, personally. So that's the, the your sort of position is almost the sort of great leap forward argument that that this is going to create change by necessity and I wonder because there is a sort of desire quite often when you when we talk about rugby and people talk about the business of rugby there is a sort of desire for cleaner lines and there's a sort of you know only if only it were like a formula one structure and Murray you might have a view on this but in terms of whether that's actually as clear and uh, you know as I as I'm assuming but that there's a messiness to rugby which some of it is you know his, as you say historic you've got lions tours which don't make any real sense if you were starting today but obviously are fundamental and and loved and cherished so you've got uh, there's a sort of anachronism to the calendar in some ways so sophie what you're saying there is that actually a mixture of private equity cvc type organizations coming in with different ideas plus the necessity that, that this current situation um, requires just immediate answers to is going to for is the sort of push that is going to make that change is that am i or am i mischaracterizing what you're yeah, saying yeah and i think it, it, it's a balanced way i mean whether it's cbc or other investors you know i think who those folks are is really key because you know we can clearly see what happens when it swings too far the other way you know it can destroy a sport and you know the essence of it which you can really struggle to get back so i think it needs to be done with investors and stakeholders or new stakeholders that um have the right vision and want to do it the right way um but i think you know there needs to be a bit of a clean sheet of paper i mean i think it's probably impractical to think they can completely completely start all over again but they've got to be more proactive and more aggressive and ambitious than they've been to date and put some of these things to the side, which means, you know, unfortunately there will be some winners or losers, but hopefully not to the extreme that's been discussed previously because there's sort of a rising tide that means everyone um, or the whole sport can be a bit better off. And so the extremes therefore aren't quite so um, dire for some of the stakeholders. But, you know, unfortunately, I think with the significant changes the sport does mean, it will mean certain things do have to go away or certain entities might have to go away for the greater good for it to, grow because you know we know if we're not moving forward if the sport's not moving forward and making giant strides then it's basically standing still which means you know you're just going to lose your place of relevance in the world um so i think it's it's that in addition if i might add to also um just looking maybe more creatively at some of the fundamentals of the sport itself from a you know playing and spectacle fan engagement standpoint um I think, you know, World Rugby credit to them and some of the unions. I think there have been quite a few tweaks to rules and they're definitely aware of needing to, whether it's speed up the game, make it more understandable, et cetera. But, you know, ultimately commercial success, which leads to sustainability, you know, is somewhat dependent or mainly dependent on growing the audience. And I think there is an opportunity um, for rugby to become simpler for new fans to understand and a bit more dynamic and interesting um, again in a way that doesn't lose the true essence of the sport but that just you know is progressive and, and catches up with what some of the others have done a lot of that can be done through broadcast and again I think they have made some really positive strides in that space 
but I think if you're looking optimally at what could happen to really drive it forward, um, a bit more open-mindedness there, again, with the right investors and stakeholders around the table that don't go too far too quickly, because I think that would be um, a real negative. Um, I think that's important as well. Yeah, I think maybe just to just to build on on what Sophie said that you know somebody that we both know very well in the in the rugby world said that you know it's impossible to build consensus in rugby unless there's a crisis and I think you know that's arguably true of uh, of lots of sports that you know you've got your entrenched positions and unless there's uh, an external there's a crisis with some external uh, influences which are able to sort of help galvanize the change you know you don't see those big leaps forward in terms of the way that a sport changes because you know arguably that was even with putting this pandemic to one side cvc to a certain extent had had forced there to be some sort of changes in the way that rugby was uh was thinking about itself and that's only going to happen uh you know, it's it's it, they're now actually forced to making sure that there's some kind of change through that, and with CVC sort of standing in the wings. And you know, I think what's interesting is that CVC seem to be sort of spending some money in the club game, obviously, and but then also looking to spend some money in the national game. And I, I mean, I personally can't quite see where they're all going to fit together, but I think that they're probably hedging their bets a little bit between the club versus country argument and trying to see a little bit where the where the chips fall and know that you know the nature of rugby politics is unless you can get the clubs on side to a certain degree you're never going to be able to manage the national game which is actually the much bigger the, the you know the much bigger prize if you get it right what's i was going to ask about cvc because i mean in formula one it was pretty obvious what they what their agenda was but Looking at it in rugby, it's less easy to to establish what the plan is, and other than to make shed loads of money, which is obviously what venture capital and private equity want. Um, but is it, is it possible to sort of identify what the direction is? Because at the moment, as you say, it's it's a bit of going in 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 a few different ways. Well, Sophie, I don't know if you if you um, have a specific view on it. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speculate too much. I'm I'm not um, close to them other than what I read, but I guess you know, I've spoken to probably enough people. I think you know, like we've been discussing, I think they feel there's huge potential still in the sport and commercial and general growth upside. Um, I think they stated quite clearly. You know, they could have used their leverage. They could have tried to get bigger stakes. Some unions wouldn't have sold, but some would have um, to get kind of more control. And I think they've obviously focused on commercial control, which is where their expertise is. But I think it's been quite clear that, you know, they value the tradition and don't want to come in and do dramatic things that don't kind of, you know, find that right balance. Um, but I think by persuading and having now some sort of voting influence um across a bunch of key assets you know that's kind of unusual other than world rugby i guess which to a certain extent sort of has some say with some of the unions um they now have got a stake i don't know which deals exactly have closed and haven't closed but you know in theory premiership um the super four not super 14 pro 14 um six nations 
um, and then potentially looking to expand beyond that, there's kind of a common thread now across those different um, entities and maybe they can therefore um, persuade to aggregate certain rights and commercial opportunities in a way that allows um, growth, more growth than we've seen recently, um, which then can help the, the game um, sort of flourish. Um, but I think, you know, they're, they're wary and um, experienced enough to know that, you know, it's sort of one step at a time. Um, and so that the core um, sort of rules, et cetera, of the sport, as I understand it, still sit with, you know, the different unions and, at the club level. Um, and so there's, there's sort of that conflict, but I think it's kind of a balance to keep both sides um, honest as well. Um, but I think, yeah, they see the upside, the gap between, you know, the number one or two sports in each market and where it rugby sits and think there's a lot of potential to be unlocked. And hopefully by now having a seat at the table, they can influence, um, especially on commercial decisions, to, you know, see some of the changes that have been discussed for, for years. And I think having that outside perspective, too. I mean, I know from an RFU standpoint, and I, I believe World Rugby has it already, as do probably most of the unions now, but when we brought in some independents onto the board and just had, again, very carefully chosen independents who definitely um, had a closeness to the sport and a history with it, but really brought different business backgrounds and different views and perspectives, it made a huge difference. You know, it changed the behavior, it changed the strategic thinking, um, and it was a real, a real positive. Um, and I think to me, you know, CVC's sort of bringing that sort of thinking um, and strategic kind of governance to the next level, which from my view is a positive, as long as, you know, you've got the right partners and investors from the outset. But, you know, they've, they've done it right a couple of times now. Um, so I think um, presumably that's why, you know, the clubs and some of the unions got comfortable bringing them on board i mean the, the one thing i would say is that, that that surprised me also sort of when i first joined world rugby was that everybody forgets that for a sport of rugby size it's it's been professional for a very short space of time and i think that actually that's something which plays a lot into the way in which rugby is run and thought about and you know, if external, uh, you know, independent people on various boards or external organisations like CVC help to sort of get the unions and clubs to understand what professionalism actually means, I, I think that that will only serve to narrow the gap between the sports which have been professional for much longer, like Formula One, like like football, and so on. And the. There's two questions really that, that sort of pop out of this. One is in front, we're also, you know, sort of hovering around um, world rugby. What was what was the nature of that their their aspiration? What would what were they trying to buy? Well, they were trying to create a, a, a nation's championship, which was going to be, you, you know, essentially taking away the autumn internationals and and or, or creating a, a meaningful competition in that autumn internationals window and you know put a huge amount of uh, of money on the table and whilst i think uh, a lot of the unions were were very interested in it you, ultimately they couldn't quite get consensus and you know some of that will be to do with the fact that you know you had cvc also circling offering 
you know six nations and other organi- and other groups you know other things and that's part of the the challenge i was going to say just in rugby but it's probably true in most sports that you know it's the fifa uefa dynamic it's the it's the six nations world rugby dynamic there's always going to be politics that are created by having these different organizations rather than you know one organization running everything top down and you know people always look at things like NBA and Formula One and others as kind of reference points because they have that clear structure of you know a, a, a an organization at the center that's doing the bidding of all of the participants unlike say rugby where you have you know if you're the RFU or the WRU or or, or Scottish rugby it, is your loyalty first to Six Nations is it to World Rugby is it to Pro 14 is it to Premiership Rugby you know it's less clear where your loyalties lie or or where your mandate if you like should be more focused and i think that 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 that, that sort of creates a sort of um, what's the word a, a sort of a, a break in the chain and it makes it much more difficult to to build that consensus and i think that's where the nations cup championship ultimately fell down was cuz you know you had the sort of the six nations and the and the tri nations at, at, at or the or the rugby championships slightly at loggerheads about uh, you know about a proposal like that because they had their own individual competitions which were perhaps more lucrative for them and you know they had more political control over there's a there's a sort of parallel you always see with the all blacks and ferrari you know bringing your two worlds together but just in terms of that um when you've got this these fantastic team brands but trying to then again they are that's another question, isn't it, for rugby in terms of how you keep the All Blacks a genuine sort of force without them, without sort of dissipating it and by just protecting, I suppose, it's not just a brand question, but just protecting the game in, in at the top level in New Zealand and just making sure there's enough money there for them to, to, to stay in that, that sort of entity. It's quite difficult, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe a difference with some of the other sort of properties that you've mentioned. I mean, the All Blacks, you know, just an amazing um, brand and, you know, level of performance, um, you know, but as I understand it, still financially they struggle, you know, maybe not as much as some other unions, but it's it's not easy for them. You know, they've had to change the rules allowing some of their players to go overseas and um, just because of, you know, where they sit in New Zealand, the amount of investment they need in general, um, you know, it's a struggle for them. So because they don't have that sort of underlying strength that maybe a Ferrari or um, other comparables in other sports um, might have, um, there therefore, you know, I think is an opportunity to get even those bigger um, unions and teams to kind of play ball and do what's good, you know, for for the greater good, if you will. Um, and they need competition, you know, they need to be playing against um, other national teams and um, their club teams need, you know, to be sitting in leagues, etc. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, the one that's in a slightly different position is the RFU, which, you know, financially, despite what, you know, you read in the media, you know, in general, at least three years out of four does very well financially. Um, they're in a completely different situation for reasons that, you know, we know. Um, but outside of that, um, there actually isn't that much um, difference between a lot of the bigger unions. Um, which maybe again is an opportunity. Maybe that is why CBC have had the success in kind of rounding up um, 
several different rights um, in a way that you know hasn't happened in other sports. Um, What's the why is the RFU always you know this story about the money and RFU and and what what is can you just unpick that for us because I'm I say I'm as someone who sort of I assume that they were in rude health but this appears not to be the case is that right? Um, no, I think that's a bit of a misnomer. I mean, I think um, they are uh, in a very good financial situation. Um, there's some new. Uh, more recent debt because of the East Stand development. Um, but again, they, you know, I, I don't know the latest, but um, they had, I think, enough in, in the bank. There's enough of, you know, really smart people there to have um, built and developed that in the right way. But the way they manage, you know, their finances is that um, what they're making goes back into the game. So they commit years in advance, whether it's back into the premiership and professional rugby or back into the grassroots and, and all the you know hundreds of clubs around the country. Um, so is it you know a not for profit like I assume most agents, uh, sorry, most unions are? Um, that's how they kind of manage you know the finances on an annual basis. In a World Cup year, they don't have the autumn international, so there's um, a kind of gap there. So that's why every four years, but that's managed and planned. Um, but they, well, they have you know a surplus and reserves. Um, what they generate commercially, they invest back into the game, and those are long-term commitments. Um, but I think they managed that, you know, pretty pretty well. Um, there was obviously this issue around sort of the last Premiership deal and whether that stretched them too too much, um, which it might have done a little bit. But I think, from what I understand, a lot of that was also just how it slightly shifted the balance as far as how much was going into the professional game versus the grassroots community game. Um, and that probably hadn't been maybe fully explained so that everyone was clear on that. Um, but clearly, you know, the demands and cost of running the professional game have, you know, grown exponentially compared to maybe the grassroots development side of the sport. Um, and so that was a shift and imbalance that, you know, I think got sort of reported in an interesting way. But no, overall they do very well. And mainly that is because you know, the size of the market and the fact that they own Twickenham um, outright mm. and there was no debt before the East Stand and it generates significant revenue. And, you know, the Six Nations has sort of held its own and, um, you know, the TV money from the Autumn Internationals, in addition to that, has put it in a very, very strong um, position. Murray, a question for you that, again, uh, Sophie mentioned earlier about... Um, on the, the the sort of presentation of the sport and making it, you know, I, I'm someone who watches rugby and I sort of understand about 30% of what's going on, I think, you know, and, but I still enjoy, I enjoy it. And, but I, as I say, my, I'm not a um, avid rugby fan. How difficult is it to, to, to just to make it easier for for the sort of the the big eventer or the the general sports sort of fan to understand. I mean, Formula One has went through a similar fate, or they they have they have a, a big bit of the the sort of um, liberty agenda seem to be opening it out, trying to make it more accessible. Whether that's by um, editorial or whether it's you know in terms of where we see it and where we find it, etc. But can you just sort of you got a view on that in terms of I I I never I would love to understand rugby more, but is it 
as straightforward as I assume it is. Well, you know, interesting enough, when I joined World Rugby, I mean, I wasn't a rugby fan and I've come out of it being a rugby fan. And I, I remember saying to Brett Gosper on my inter- at my interview, look, if you're looking for somebody that knows rugby, I'm not your guy. Um, but if you're looking for somebody that thinks that they understand sports marketing, then I, then I can probably help you out a little bit there. And, you know, he said, look, we've got tons of people inside that understand the sport, but we tend to look at it in a quite a myopic way. So we're actually looking for people to approach it slightly differently and and I think that there is such great potential in rugby because you know having been able to be close to it for such a long time now you see that there are so many different dynamics to it and it's everything from you know if you're lucky enough to use RefLink and being able to hear how and what the players and the referee are saying to each other um, it gives you a whole different perspective on the game. If you happen to be sitting next to somebody that really has played the game or coached the game and knows it really well, the insight that they can give you about what you know why people are lined up in a certain way or, or why they're approaching a specific thing in a certain manner, it, it, you know, adds adds that adds to that whole rich experience. And I think that you know a lot of it comes down to investment and. Formula One has probably taken two leaps forward. One was the investment that Sky made in broadcasting Formula One and all of the immense amount of wraparound programming that they've put up there and the high caliber of pundits and presenters that they have have really transformed, I think, the way that people see it. But then it's also looking for sort of smart commercial partnerships and and one of the ones which you've seen a little bit in Six Nations but worked extremely well in, in Formula One was a partnership with Amazon Web Services. And that was a great sort of, you know, not just a, a good commercial deal for Formula One, but one that was a really additive experience for viewers where by using uh, the, the crunch, the number crunching ability of AWS, you're able to put up certain stats and information in real time for a formula one fan that gives you a very different perspective on the game and they're they're trying to do something similar to that with six nations albeit very difficult because you have different uh uh, companies producing it whereas formula one is producing every single uh, every single race itself with the exception of monaco so you know that having that unified approach uh has helped to make a tv product much better uh, another big change that Formula One made was bringing in David Hill as a consultant. And for those people that don't know who David Hill is, he's probably the most, uh, one of the most decorated or famous um, TV sports producers or just TV producers ever. Done everything from the Oscars through to NFL, and is uh, aside from uh, aside from a man of immense ability, a, a real sort of whirlwind when it comes to shaking things up and. You know, we did everything at Formula One from changing the theme music to um, figuring out how we how the sport was telling a story rather than just showing a race. And, you know, Bernie famously used to not film certain teams that he had fallen out with so that their (laughs) sponsors would not get much visibility. And of course, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, David put an end to that and said, look, you know, we, we're here to tell a story. We're trying to here to tell the, the characters that are behind the helmets. And, you know, I think it does make a massive difference if you bring somebody in from outside of the sport to be able to uh, uh, expose it to a more casual audience. Because, you, know, you know, I always use this thing about like 
if you're an avid fan, it doesn't really matter what you're going to what happens to the to the to the TV pictures. You're going to be a fan anyway. You may grumble about it, but the more that you can do to sort of explain and expose the sport to uh, more casual fans, the more that you're sort of bringing them closer into the center of the sport. And being very long winded, but I mean, uh, the, the the point being is that there's still a huge amount of potential in rugby to actually expose it in a much more compelling way to. To, to fans and I think you're seeing some of that in the way that the the rugby world cup is is uh is sort of uh filmed and uh and the fact that they have a deal with ITV and looking at free to air exposure in places like Germany and so on trying to expose it to a bigger audience as well as trying to make it a very different production from a sort of a hardcore say club rugby type production trying to make it a much more accessible to a wider audience right I've got two I've got um, a finishing off question, let's call it that, in elegant language. But I'm going to push us forward 10 years. And I want to know what the what rugby is going to look like and what will still exist and what won't. So either of you can answer this. In 10 years, will there be a Lions tour? Yes. I, I think that there will be, but I think it will... I think it's a it's such a political it's such a, such a unique thing about rugby, but it's also so political. I mean, I'm quite controversial in that I think that something has to give, and you know that's probably one that, as a as somebody that doesn't have an attachment to the Lions, would say that it's probably worth exploring whether you replace that with something else. But I know that you know hardcore rugby fans would accuse me of heresy by saying that. Sophie, yeah, I would say it would exist, but in a different different guise. Um, unless the sport hasn't moved forward, um, I think the current schedule and setup isn't sustainable if you want to grow collectively. Um, Six Nations, will that exist in the same form? Six Nations, I think, will exist, but not in the same form, no. What could, it look, what could it, it look like? Um, I think the the overall international season linked with the Six Nations figuring out a way that that can kind of fit together. I think having two big chunks um, taken out of the calendar with the Six Nations, Autumn Internationals, or I guess three if you look at the summer tours, which is then flipped on its head for the Southern Hemisphere. Um, I don't think that is sustainable if you want to see the, the sport thrive. Um, so I think the timing of it, potentially which nations are involved, is there some kind of qualifying to get into the main event? Um, I think, you know, there's, again, even though the success, Six Nations is pretty successful financially, I think there's significant upside. I think that was a, it's a key aspect for CBC to be involved in from their perspective to monetize um, the rest of the sport. Um, but I think um, both how it works with the other um, international matches um, and the structure of the event itself and which teams you really need in it um, to help it be optimised um, but in a way that helps that second tier grow as well. And there's been already you know, quite a lot of talk and ideas around that, I think. Um, but yeah, I think status quo um, is unlikely. No, I mean, agree, unlikely. I, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with that. And I think if there's a way to develop uh, the potential... I'm not going to call it promotional relegation, but if there's a way to develop the potential for teams outside the current Six Nations to 
have a hope of entering the Six Nations, um, I think that that would be uh, that would be for not that would that would be a big success for me in ten years' time if they if that's figured out because I think it's an absolute crying shame that a that a, that a fantastic team like Georgia uh, doesn't have the possibility to to play in the Six Nations and you know aside from the pure financials of it just to show you know to showcase themselves against uh, against the biggest teams in the northern hemisphere and you know eventually if the ambition is to grow nations like the US Germany Brazil you, you know there's got to be a way to figure out how you get those those people eventually or those countries eventually into that top competition if that's expanding it if that's a promotion relegation there's got to be some kind of amendment for that but you know turkeys don't vote for christmas and just on uh, this was prompted by bill beaumont's statement the other day do you think the heineken cup or will exist in 10 years time in its current form well firstly i think that what they're saying what you've what you've heard bernard laporte say recently i always think that once you get into the sort of electioneering time in any sport it's a bit difficult to understand how much is being said for public consumption and how much is being said for voting consumption and I probably would you know I don't think that a world club competition is something that is 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 feasible at this stage I, I think it's putting it'll put pressure on on the Heineken Cup um, to be the best competition that it can be um, and I think that that club rugby in general that there is going to be continued to be a tussle between national and club level rugby I think and if there was a way to resolve that in the next 10 years that would be a huge victory for somebody if they could uh, they could figure that part out I remember um, being at a conference I can't remember years ago and uh the idea being that the growth, the potential commercial growth in rugby was at a club level rather than a national level. I'm just wondering, is that something that you think, is that an idea that's still the case? Or is it, do you, do you, do you think that, that it will just get crowded out by the, uh, by the national, national game? I mean, I'm sometimes accused of being a bit glass overflowing. Um <laughs> But I think they both have potential to grow. I mean, I think, you know, rugby is unique compared to football still in that how important sort of the national um, teams are, um, which I think is a great driver of overall interest in the sport. Um, but I think the club game has um, even more opportunity to grow. But I still feel both can. And I think one can help the other. I think for them to really work together would be really unique and unprecedented in sport. Um, so I'd love to see that happen. But I, I believe both can grow. But I think, you know, the club game has even more potential. It's starting from, you know, unfortunately, a lower um, point. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of things that, that need to change and improve. But I think they're, they're heading in the right direction. Um, Do you think the direction but, yeah. is, is a sort of NFL closed league franchise? rather than a traditional European promotion relegation club-based future? Um, I mean, that, you know, it's a big question, isn't it? I think it makes it easier if it's a closed league. I don't think it's the only way to do it, but I think it, it does make it um, easier from, 
you know, an investment standpoint, getting the clubs to think the right way, really being truly aligned and not kind of, you know, hedging their bets um, with the relegation opportunity. But it's, you know, also what makes European sport different. But I think, um, yeah, I think it's easier if there is some kind of closed um, setup. Okay, listen, I'm really grateful. I know, and Sophie, you're over there in LA. And uh, where are you, Murray? You're in uh, home counties. Uh, Hammersmith. Lovely Hammersmith. Oh, you see. And I'm in Brighton. See, this is the future. This is, you know, the where this uh, the virus has uh, put a pressure on podcasters. We used to do these things face-to-face, but now we're, we're able to spread our wings. So thanks very much for your time. Really enjoyed that. And it uh, goes without saying, both hopefully be well and uh, stay safe. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no, thanks for giving us the opportunity. Good to uh, good to catch up, even virtually, and discuss an interesting topic. So, yeah, stay safe, everyone else. Thanks again. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers.